0: Chapter 4, Part 2, of Saint George and Saint Michael, Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan. Saint George and Saint Michael, Volume 1, by George MacDonald. Chapter 4, A Chapter of Fools, Part 2. By this time the door of the neighbouring guardroom was crowded with the heads of eager listeners, but the presence of the Earl kept them quiet and at a sign from him they drew back ere the men entered the earl himself took a position where he would be covered by the opening wicket tom received them into bodily presence with the notification that having suspected their object he had sent all his people out of the way in order to avoid the least danger of a broil bowing to them with the utmost politeness as they entered he requested them to step forward into the court while he closed the wicket behind them, but took the opportunity of whispering to one of the men just inside the door of the guardhouse, who, the moment Tom had led the rustics away, approached the earl and told him what he had said. "'What can the rascal mean?' said the earl to himself. But he told the man to carry the fool's message exactly as he had received it, and quietly followed Tom and his companions.' some of whom, conceiving fresh importance from the overstrained politeness with which they had been received, were now attempting a transformation of their usual loundering gait into a martial stride, with the result of a foolish strut, very unlike the dignified progress of the sham earl, whose weak back roused in them no suspicion, and who had taken care they should not see his face. Across the paved court, and through the hall to the inner court, tom led them and the earl followed the twilight was falling the hall was empty of life and filled with a sombre dusk echoing to every step as they passed through it they did not see the flash of eyes and glimmer of smiles from the minstrels gallery and the solitude sighs and gloom had even on their dull natures a palpable influence the whole castle seemed deserted as they followed the false Earl across the second court, with the true one stealing after them like a knave, little imagining that bright eyes were watching them from the curtains of every window, like stars from the clear spaces and cloudy edges of heaven. To the northwest corner of the court he led them, and through a sculptured doorway up the straight, wide ascent of stone called the Grand Staircase. At the top, he turned to the right, along a dim corridor, from which he entered a suite of bedrooms and dressing-rooms, over whose black floors he led the trampling hobnailed shoes, without pity, either for their polish, or for the labour of the housemaids in restoring it. In this way he reached the stair of the bell-tower, ascending which he brought them into a narrow dark passage, ending again in a downward stair at the foot of which they found themselves in the long-picture gallery, having entered it in the recess of one of its large windows. At the other end of the gallery he crossed into the dining-room, then, through an antechamber, entered the drawing-room, where the ladies, apprised of their approach, kept still behind curtains and high chairs until they had passed through on their way to cross the archway of the main entrance and through the library gain the region of household economy and cookery. Thither I will not drag my reader after them. Indeed, the earl, who had been dogging them like a fate, ever emerging on their track but never beheld, had already begun to pay his part of the penalty of the joke in fatigue, for he was not only unwieldy in person, but, far from robust, being very subject to gout. He owed his good spirits to a noble nature, and not to animal well-being. When they crossed from the picture-gallery to the dining-room, he went down the stair between, and into the oak-parlour adjoining the great hall. There he threw himself into an easy-chair, which always stood for him in the great bay-window, looking over the moat to the huge keep of the castle, and commanding, through its western light, the stone bridge which crossed it. There he lay back at his ease, and instructed by the message tom had committed to the sergeant of the guard waited the result as for his double he went stalking on in front of his victims never turning to show his face he knew they would follow were it but for the fear of being left alone close behind him they kept scarce daring to whisper from growing awe of the vast place the fumes of the beer had by this time evaporated and the heavy obscurity which pervaded the whole building enhanced their growing apprehensions on and on the fool led them up and down going and returning but ever in new tracks for the marvellous old place was interminably burrowed with connecting passages and communications of every sort some of them the merest ducts which had to be all but crept through and which would have certainly arrested the progress of the earl had he followed so far No one about the place understood its crinkles so well as Tom. For the greater part of an hour he led them thus, until, having been on their legs the whole day, they were thoroughly wearied, as well as awestruck. At length, in a gloomy chamber, where one could not see the face of another, the pseudo earl turned upon them, and said in his most solemn tones, Arrived thus far, my masters, it is borne in upon me with rebuke, that before undertaking to guide you to the armoury, I should have acquainted you with the strange fact that, at times, I am myself unable to find the place of which we are in search, and I begin to fear it is so now, and that we are at this moment the sport of a certain member of my family, of whom it may be your worships have heard things not more strange than true. Against his machinations I am powerless. All that is left us is to go to him, and entreat him to unsay his spells. A confused murmur of objections arose. "'Then your worships will remain here, while I go to the yellow tower, and come to you again,' said the mock earl, making as if he would leave them. But they crowded round him with earnest refusals to be abandoned, for, in their very souls, they felt the fact that they were upon enchanted ground, and in the dark.' Then follow me, he said, and conducted them into the open air of the inner court, almost opposite the archway in its buildings, leading to the stone bridge, whose Gothic structure bestrid the moat of the keep. For Raglan Castle had this peculiarity, that its keep was surrounded by a moat of its own, separating it from the rest of the castle, so that, save by bridge, no one within, any more than without the walls, could reach it. On to the bridge Tom led the way, followed by his dupes, now full in the view of the Earl where he sat in his parlour window. When they had reached the centre of it, however, and glancing up at the awful bulk of stone towering above them, its walls strangely dented and furrowed, so as, to such as they, might well suggest frightful means to wicked ends, they stood stock still, refusing to go a step further, while their chief speaker, up still, emboldened by anger, fear, and the meek behaviour of the supposed earl, broke out in a torrent of arrogance, wherein his intention was to brandish the terrors of the High Parliament over the heads of his Lordship of Worcester and all recusants. He had not gone far, however, before a shrill whistle pierced the air, and the next instant arose a chaos of horrible, appalling, and harrowing noises. Such a roaring!— in the words of their own report of the matter to the Reverend Master Flowerdew, as if the mouth of hell had been wide open, and all the devils conjured up. Doubtless they meant by the arts of the wizard, whose dwelling was that same tower of fearful fame, before which they now stood. The skin-contracting chill of terror uplifted their hair. The mystery that enveloped the origin of the sounds gave them an unearthliness— which froze the very fountains of their life, and rendered them incapable, even of motion. They stared at each other with a ghastly observance, which descried no comfort, only like images of horror. Man's hand is not able to taste how long they might have thus stood, nor his tongue to conceive what the consequences might have been, had not a more healthy terror presently supervened. Across the tumult of sounds like a fiercer flash through the flames of a furnace, shot a hideous, long-drawn yell, and the same instant came a man, running at full speed through the archway from the court, casting terror-stricken glances behind him, and shouting with a voice, half-choked to a shriek, Look to yourselves, my masters, the lions are got loose! All the world knew that ever since King James had set the fashion, by taking so much pleasure in the lions at the tower, strange beasts had been kept in the castle of raglan the new terror broke the spell of the old and the parliamentary commissioners fled but which was the way from the castle which the path to the lion's den in an agony of horrible dread they rushed hither and thither about the court where now the white horse as steady as marble should be when first they crossed it was to their excited vision prancing wildly about the great basin, from whose charmed circle he could not break, foaming at the mouth, and casting huge water-jets from his nostrils into the perturbed air, while from the surface of the moat a great column of water shot up, nearly as high as the citadel, whose return into the moat was like a tempest, and with all the elemental tumult was mingled the howling of wild beasts. The doors of the hall and the gates to the bowling green were shut, The poor wretches could not find their way out of the court, but ran from door to door like madmen, only to find all closed against them. From every window around the court, from the apartments of the waiting gentlewomen, from the picture-gallery, from the officers' rooms, eager and merry eyes looked down on the spot, themselves unseen and unsuspected. For all voices were hushed, and for anything the bumpkins heard or saw, they might have been in a place deserted of men and possessed only by evil spirits whose pranks were now tormenting them at last upstill who had fallen on the bridge at his first start and had ever since been rushing about with a limp and a leap alternated managed to open the door of the hall and its eastern door having been left open shot across into the outer court where he made for the gate followed at varied distances by the rest of the routed commissioners of search as each had discovered the way his forerunner fled. With trembling hands, Upstill raised the latch of the wicket, and to his delight found it unlocked. He darted through, past the twin portcullises, and was presently thundering over the drawbridge, which, trembling under his heavy steps, seemed on the point of rising to heave him back into the jaws of the lion, or, worse still, the clutches of the enchanter. Not one looked behind him, not even when having passed through the white stone gate also purposely left open for their escape and rattled down the multitude of steps that told how deep was the moat they had just crossed where the last of them nearly broke his neck by rolling almost from top to bottom they reached the outermost the brick gate and so left the awful region of enchantment and feline fury commingled not until the castle was out of sight and their leader had sunk senseless on the turf by the roadside, did they dare a backward look. The moment he came to himself, they started again for home, at what poor speed they could make, and reached the crown and mitre in sad plight, where, however, they found some compensation in the pleasure of setting forth their adventures, with the heroic manner in which, although vanquished by the irresistible force of enchantment, they had yet brought off their forces, without the loss of a single man their story spread over the country enlarged and embellished at every fresh stage in its progress when the tale reached mother reese it filled her with fresh awe of the great magician the renowned lord herbert she little thought the affair was a jest of her own sons firmly believing in all kinds of magic and witchcraft but as innocent of conscious dealing with the powers of ill as the whitest-winged angel betwixt earth's garret and heaven's threshold she owed her evil repute amongst her neighbours to a rare therapeutic faculty accompanied by a keen sympathetic instinct which greatly sharpened her powers of observation in the quest after what was amiss while her touch was so delicate so informed with present mind and came therefore into such rapport with any living organism the secret of whose suffering it sought to discover that sprained muscles, dislocated joints, and broken bones seemed, at its soft approach, to rearrange their disturbed parts, and yield to the power of her composing will, as to a reordering harmony. Add to this that she understood more of the virtues of some herbs than any doctor in the parish, which, in the condition of general practice at the time, is not, perhaps, to say much, and that she firmly believed in the might of certain charms, and occasionally used them, and I have given reason enough why, while regarded by all with disapprobation, she should be, by many, both courted and feared. For her own part she had a leaning to the Puritans, chiefly from respect to the memory of a good-hearted, weak, but intellectually gifted, and therefore admired husband. But the ridicule of her yet more gifted son had a good deal shaken this predilection, so that she now spent what powers of discrimination and choice she possessed solely upon persons heedless of principles in themselves, and regarding them only in their vital results. Hence it was a matter of absolute indifference to her which of the parties now dividing the country was in the right, or which should lose, which win, provided no personal evil befell the men or women for whom she cherished a preference. Like many another... She was hardly aware of the jurisdiction of conscience, save in respect of immediate personal relations. End of chapter 4, part 2